This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. It's going to be a really interesting last live show of 2020, and we couldn't really have a better segment lined up for you. We're going to be talking with a Nobel Prize winning economist on his views of the market, some updated models, something Professor Siegel focuses on very, very closely. Um, but before for that professor just wrapping up 2020 i guess give us your 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 overall outlook ending the year looking into the new year how are you how are you feeling yeah well you know uh, jeremy it's almost like where do we start i mean uh you know i i i, I just want to mention um the, the software breaches that we've been hearing about of uh you know solar wind and uh fire eye and and uh this is this is a potentially big deal um and uh uh, uh you know we see those cybersecurity stocks soaring i mean this is and then this could require a lot of resources to fix from what i'm now i'm no expert on this but um i uh at first i ignored this but i'm not going to ignore it anymore this is this is this is something now I, I don't i don't mean this is bad for the stock market or anything it just means resources really have to be put into this and and um i think we're going to be hearing an awful lot more about that uh in the next couple of weeks stimulus talks we're going to have it you know i i mean some of this some of this stuff is really stupid about the democrats you know saying you know uh, uh the authority these couple of authorities that the fed has uh, that uh, the Republicans don't want to give the Fed back. We don't need those other authorities of this Main Street lending and these others now. We're way beyond, way beyond that. I mean, uh, and we can implement them again if some other crisis comes. We certainly don't need it for the virus crisis at all. Um, you know, this is a silly point to to hold things up on. But we're gonna we're gonna come to a deal and. Um, uh, the market, I think, pretty well anticipates that deal. Um, more liquidity added. As you know, I'm still very bullish for next year. Um, Jeremy, I do want to appreciate you. We, we, we brought up last year that M1 has been soaring, uh, and uh, we're trying to understand why. And uh, it has to do, as, as you found out and emailed me, that uh, there was a regulation change by the Fed in types of accounts that have now moved accounts from M2 to M, well, from savings accounts to to M1 accounts. Uh, M2 includes both uh, M1 accounts. So um, uh, that has caused a tremendous $800 billion jump in, in, in M1. Uh, however, even after taking into account that regulation change, looking at M2, which is now going to probably be the better measure to look at, we are still up 25% year over year, which, by the way, is um, uh, nearly twice that of any other major country in the world. We've added more liquidity in, in an M2 way than almost any other country in the world. So it's not so surprising to see the dollar sinking. It's not so surprising to see stocks so so strong um, uh, into uh, into next year. Of course, uh, I, I think um, um, we had a Fed meeting. You know, that's almost like a you know postscript now. It used to be so important. 
nothing new really, a little disappointment. Maybe they should have moved a little bit towards long buying versus short. There was no real announcement, but they are buying still a lot. Um, I, you know, it's not moving the markets much. Everyone's just expecting them to stay pat and be very accommodative. Vaccines are being rolled out. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a big story about how effectively they rolled out. Um, you know, we got Regeneron. It's going to be improved, and it's going to join uh, Pfizer. I think uh, you know, we were all waiting on J&J, which is, as you know, a one-shot vaccine, which could uh, be rolled out and therefore be effective uh, uh, quite sooner. Uh, I think we're going to hear a lot about that. Um, there's also news out of a behind the scenes about why we're not using Regeneron and Lilly's therapeutics, which could cut hospitalizations by tens of thousands. And I mean, that's another story in and of itself. Uh, but uh, so there's going to be a lot of vaccine therapeutic news going on. And on top of that, we have, of course, Tesla going into the S&P 500. Um, <laughs> the biggest stock ever to go into the S&P 500. I think it's the biggest I think it's the sixth largest capitalization stock in the United States. Um, never has such a big stock been added to the S&P 500. Now, one should note that even though index funds have to buy it, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, money managers and others have bought it in anticipation of handing it over to the index fund. So it isn't like it's going to jump at that point. In fact, it could fall quite precipitously if more people have bought it than actually the index funds uh, want because it's not clear how much has been bought. But that's going to be really interesting to watch also going forward. So we've got <laughs> uh, the year is going to end well. Um, despite the pandemic surge because of uh, good good news on the horizon. Yeah, and I know uh, we're going to be we're bringing in Bob Schiller to talk about his work on valuations and what that means for returns. Do you want to maybe help set the stage, how you think about where we are on a valuation sense, how you look at valuations, and how you start thinking about where we're going from here? Um, so you're, you're, at, you're asking me, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah first. So let, 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 me, let me first set the stage for, I know uh, this is not the first time Bob has been on. In fact, I think one of the very first shows, Bob, we had you on just before you went off to Sweden to get the Nobel Prize. Um, so, um, uh, uh, and uh, we're, you know, we're, we're thrilled to, to, to have you back. Bob and I have known each other for over a half a century and stayed in contact, and we've talked about the markets a long time. Um, uh, Bob, Bob has given us the CAPE ratio, C-A-P-E, uh, which is the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Instead of just looking at one year's earnings, he looks at the average of 10 years of, of past earnings. Um, uh, he did his work originally with uh, John Campbell in the late 1990s. Um, he made a great impression on Alan Greenspan. Um, um, in, in fact, am, am, I, am I right, Bob, that, that was it Alan Greenspan that used the term irrational exuberance? He did in that speech, and then you borrowed it for the book. Or were you, right. the, first to, were you the first to use it? Uh, the term irrational exuberance goes back 100 years. Yeah. So it wasn't uh, <laughs> well, a new we know that probably oh, with either of us. Who first used it? I'm sorry. Who first? Who first used it? Oh, it was sporadic. I, you know, you can yeah. search. That's we live in the internet age, right? You can search old newspapers. Uh, it wasn't a common phrase, uh, but I think uh, Alan Greenspan uh, said it. Uh, got the thing going. He is the instigator. Yeah. Of, because it 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 was a nice name for what was happening then. Uh, the stock market in 1987 seemed highly priced. Uh, not as high as it is now, but it seemed highly priced. Uh, but it didn't seem like people were crazy. They use these terms like speculative orgy, which sounds crazy. Uh, it's not crazy. It's it's the, the kind of uh, judgment errors uh, when we were faced with an ambiguous situation. For predicting uh, the future earnings of companies is hard to do. Yeah. It, and... Uh, uh, 
So, so let let's talk about where we are yeah. today, because um, that's I know what our our our, our listeners are are, are wanting. Um, uh, you you have very recently revised the Cape ratio, um, and if I can summarize and correct me if I'm I'm wrong, but basically um, instead of just looking just at the price earnings ratio, you look at the price earnings ratio or the Earnings yield, which is the inverse of the price right. earnings ratio, um, relative to uh, the risk-free rate, which is the rate on treasuries, all measured after inflation. Right. Um, and uh, as a result of the fact that we have record low rates, um, the market does not look anywhere near as badly overvalued now as uh, it did under uh, your older formulation. Um, now well, I I still yeah. Uh, so if you want to elaborate yeah. a little bit on on that, uh, well the new uh, this isn't replacing the old formulation. It, it's it's showing an explicit implication. The cape excess cape yield is the difference between the uh, yield on stocks and the yield on uh, bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could define other excess cape ratios. For example, between uh, the the, uh, the earnings price ratio on stocks and the uh, rent price ratio on homes, <laughs> it's a question of what alternative to stocks are you thinking of. Mm-hmm. And so you want to know which one is higher. So uh, actually, I haven't actually created an excess cape ratio for stocks versus housing. You could do rentals versus prices, and we know the uh, the the. the of course, the rental market, uh, well, and 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 the home price market is very good. But let's st- let's stick with 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 prices, um, with the stocks. Um, from what I understand, you are predicting a ten-year excess return. Is it four percent now, Bob? Yes, or, uh, or, uh, roughly four percent. Yeah, for and the United States. In the, the United, United States, States right. appears to be a highly priced market. Right, four percent. So, with the uh, real ten-year tips being minus one, um, in inflation-corrected terms, yeah. Right, right. Oh, tips, you said yes. Yeah, I did say tips. So yes, inflation return that predicts a three uh, percent real return on stocks. Um, right. Real return on stocks going forward. Right, because you have to add the yeah, uh, right uh, now, the uh, interest rate for, to the excess return, then you get the return. Right for for ten years, uh, it's not a forecast for the short run. It's, uh, it's a, a long run forecast. Now the ten years forecast is certainly consider about half of the long run average. I mean, I get six point seven is you know two hundred and twenty years. Uh, I've low. I've I've re- my my ten years is still higher five percent. Um, but um, what what would your what on the raw cape ratio? What is your um, what would the prediction be? Uh, well, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, I think it would be for the stock return something analogous or close. Uh, would would it, would it, it would be much lower than three percent though? Wouldn't it on the raw if you didn't do an, a a. a, a a interest rate corrected, and you just used your yeah maybe I, I you okay. got me I don't have the numbers okay in front of me. okay because I'm 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 just thinking yeah. that given the record low real rates right. you would think that this would be a, a right now so there's been there's one of your fans and followers which we hope to have had on and we uh, he gave us a little bit too late a notice. John Authors, who's written for the Financial Times, he, you've got a big interview. I think that's online, if I'm if I'm right. I think so yeah, yeah. Uh, of you talking about Cape, he's been a really um, prolific writer on Cape. I've been interviewed by him. Uh, he's moved to Bloomberg. Um, he was on the Financial Times. He's British, um, but um, I, I he I thought he stayed at five percent. Was that a mistake when he? Maybe. You're up to five percent real. Maybe it was. Yeah, okay. I, I can't say definitely. I have to. Yeah, okay, because I, I, you know, because that would that 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 would be that would be mine, and I, I don't, that would be 
that would be a, a fairly a fairly a, a bullish on there. Now, another thing that that um, has been pointed out, and in fact, in in one of authors' uh, discussion of yours, um, and and this, by the way, really also happened in 1999, and that was there was a there's a big difference between the group of stocks which we now call FANG, which we used to call, I guess, the Internet stocks or the tech stocks, right. uh, and, the non-te- and the non-tech stocks. Um, uh, if, you take out, <clears throat> if you take out FANG, um, you get a much lower price-earnings ratio, and obviously I, I imagine you would, you, you would get a much lower valuation. Have you been able to... Actually, so give a, uh, this, a look at that. This is a big question. You know, I, I, I think we're kind of equally concerned about these issues, and it's hard to resolve them. But we might be at a turning point in history, which uh, we we've been doing. Learning by doing, it's called by some economists, uh, doing things a different way because of COVID nineteen, and after COVID nineteen passes, will be a different world. So one thing that we've learned is the, the potential for uh, conference calls or meetings with people all over the world. Now we have parties where you invite people. It doesn't matter what country they're in. This is a fundamental change, and, it, and it's advanced by high technology. So U.S. Is a, has been and is the world leader in information technology. So there's a question which I can't resolve. The CAPE ratio doesn't – well, the CAPE ratio shows that history uh, tends to be unkind to markets after a high CAPE ratio, but it's not anything like a surety. Uh, So we have to judge, is the U.S. going to be a leader uh, in advancing information technology in the future with China coming up and – Things are changing, and it's very hard to judge. So we now have uh, TikTok, which has 100 million followers in the United States. It's a social media-type company uh, from China. Uh, Things are are changing, uh, and it's a judgment call whether the U.S. will maintain its leadership in the advanced technology world. Uh, So, you know, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now, is that uh, – does COVID uh, – I mean, China was advancing even before COVID. I mean, is this is, – do you think that COVID might accelerate that? I mean, when you look at right. Fang, they're all American company. I mean, listen, America has dominated the tech revolution, right? right. I mean, you're right. TikTok is, is a social media that is born in, in China. Uh, there's Alibaba. There's there's things like Amazon. Um, Europe doesn't seem to have made it, um, but China. Uh, do, do you think that the, a new fang could grow out of China, or do you think the Chinese uh, have the ability to produce companies as as prominent as Fang into the future? It's another deep question. First of all, the Chinese are very smart and hardworking, yeah. uh, but they've been limited. You know, remember the Cultural Revolution? <clears throat> that was not a good time to start an entrepreneur startup in China. Uh, and so they've shaken off the extreme extremism of that time. Uh, but, yeah, there's, it's, it's a deep question. They don't have a democracy. Uh, they... they uh, they may not. Uh, people may not feel as feel as secure in their wealth. One thing that's happened is uh, Donald Trump has left uh, a feeling that uh, gave, gives an impression that capitalist feeling is still strong in the U.S. Uh, and uh, maybe it's a good place to start a business. Uh, well, venture capital and, still flock to the U.S. I mean, right? That's and so, for sure, and, uh, um, the. The kind of people who came to the U.S. are people over the centuries who had a value, values, and entrepreneurial values. They came individually to the United States because of the so-called land of opportunity. Uh, so we have a mix of people from all over the world who are entrepreneurial. 
Yeah. And that's that's an advantage that we have. Well, I think I think your point is interesting. I mean, we we we've just, you know, it's Jack Ma, you know, was trying to launch the Ant IPO and uh, allegedly because he had uh, said something that was not liked by the Communist Party and and she uh they can basically canceled it or delayed it uh for a long time i mean there's there's insecurity with uh, personal right. wealth and, uh, and entrepreneurship Professor, yeah. let me just re- real quickly reintroduce who we're talking to here. We have Bob Schiller from Yale University. We have Jeremy Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, sorry, Bob. I just want to make sure our, our listeners in their in their cars and knew who we're talking to. Yeah, you know, we we have to break in to make sure that people come a little late and know know what we're talking about. But uh, so you're 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 do you, do you do you? I know your your latest book, which we we had you on a you know a few months ago, um, narrative economics. Um, is is the does COVID start a new narrative? Um, do you think that that could be then very positive for the stock market above and beyond what the CAPE ratio says? Uh, well, COVID is not the only thing. Let's not overemphasize that. Okay. Uh, the, the the broad change, the bigger change is social media uh, and our communication. We we establish friendship links now around the world much more naturally, uh, and the nation-state itself might be changed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to predict where this is going. Uh, when, when you have friends all over the world and you're communicating directly to them, you're, you're hearing their uh, tweets or whatever. It's a new and different world that we're living in. I, I think it's overall a, a good thing. It's a great thing. Uh, our internet is a wonderful boost to human welfare. Uh, our ability to find out things is just wonderful now. You don't have to go to the library anymore. People are becoming more worldly. But un- un- unfortunately, it also encourages fake news, and uh, the, like the news uh, just the uh, just today about Russian hacking uh, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of scary. Yeah. Well, do, do 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 I mean, they say there's there's, you're right. We have access to more information instantly, but are are people not getting? I mean, there seems to be more fake news than ever, and I think people are believing more in in things that we would call conspiracy theories, unfounded scientific propositions. That's that's a big negative, isn't it, Bob? Right, and yeah. the, and the loss of trust is a big negative. Well, and I wonder how that's factoring into the stock prices and what's performing well. Like you have, you know, these sort of tech growth companies. Is that is that feeding into some of these narrative type stocks versus you know sort of the lower valued stocks? How, do you, is there anything going on there? Well, the narrative is very strong about the fangs and about entrepreneurs who drop out of college to start a business. They it it is it's engaging to people who who never went to college that <laughs> that's part of the trump uh, uh message make america great again we'll have our great coal miners somehow <laughs> well great... he did go to college i mean he actually graduated from my school <laughs> i know way before i was there by the way i, I keep on getting oh were you professor Siegel, were you trump's teacher <laughs> yes. and i said we're we're the same age so that's going to be pretty hard uh, <laughs> Well, those things almost do happen. Young assistant <laughs> professors might actually be the same age as their students. Um, but uh, I think Elon Musk also went to, got grad. I mean, I mean, people like Bill Gates and others dropped out, and Warren Buffett dropped out of Wharton. I mean, you, you know, there are Steve Jobs. There, yeah, Steve Jobs. I mean, there are definitely those uh, those 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 billionaires. Um, I always actually thought. Uh, you know, and I was saying ten years ago, and I I want to know your opinion on that. That the 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 ability for people to connect with ideas and 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 find sources so quickly and get to the edge of uh, you know the cutting edge of the research um, would accelerate technological change because I mean all those. Delays, right, right. 
Uh, yeah, I used to be a, a, a denizen of libraries. I would go there, and uh, I'd make a special trip to use the encyclopedia. <laughs> but now it's just at my fingertips, everywhere, all the time. Yeah. Much more than I, I'd have, I have to do deep digging to do the search for some fact. Yeah. In the library, <laughs> 20, 30 years ago. Well, the whole, uh, you know, uh, RNA uh, thing, you know, the Chinese produced the, you know, the, 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 the code on it, and then, you know, Pfizer and Moderna ran with it immediately. I mean, it was just like someone published the code two weeks after the first case, and, I mean, you yeah. know, how, you know how, that couldn't have been done 20 years ago. So we just have to make sure it leads to a better world and not a more militaristic world. Or Yeah. Well, yeah, get, getting back to the, to the markets, I mean, uh, this is a shift to a less pessimist. I mean, uh, what, 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 what is your, what do you recommend? What, what, what would you, what do you have? I mean, you know, well, you yeah. know, and you're, yeah, I'm always, I'm always asked the question, no, well, Dr. Ziegler, what do you have in your portfolio? I mean, Bob, what do you have in your portfolio now to take a, you know, your longer term, you know, not, yeah. not, what do you, what, what do you think one should have? Well, I, I, you know, it's not a very inspiring message. Uh, but it's, it's practical. Diversify, uh, diversify internationally. Now you did mention that U.S. is higher. I mean, we, we have half the equity capital approximately uh, in the United States, um, and then about of the remaining, maybe you know, thirty-five, forty percent in EFA, and then a ten percent emerging market. Because of the lower valuations in those foreign uh, non-U.S. companies. Would you recommend an overweight? Um, yeah, I the, think so. Okay. Would you recommend an overweight on a a, a, a value, or you know, taking those stocks that aren't? That's should we avoid the, the Teslas and all that, or are they stories that can go on, you know, forever? Not forever. Nothing's yeah. forever. But what? What? How do you feel about those? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not the final expert on any of these things. I, I, I'm thinking that, uh, right, Tesla might ultimately be like Polaroid Corporation. <laughs> Remember, when yeah. Edwin Land most, yeah. dropped out of Edwin Land dropped out of college <laughs> to, to found the Polaroid Corporation, and it's prospered as long as he was at the helm. And, and then when he retired, it went down the tubes. <laughs> and by the way, the, the Polaroid was, when I wrote the first edition of Stocks for the Long Run, the most overvalued Nifty 50 stock of the 70s. Oh. Ninety times earnings it was in the S&P. And, of course, yeah. as, uh, as, 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 as disappeared. In fact, Rob Arnott has come out very recently saying that uh, those companies that, you know, get to the top – or, or that are added are underperform, and, and he was talking about Tesla. Those that get kicked out over the next five to ten years. So, would you be? Would you, if you had the opportunity, would you be weight, try to be weighted towards the more conservative stocks? Well, I'm not sure. Actually, I think that we've. Uh, it's been a research project. I'm thinking about how do, how do we quantify this? Mm-hmm. See, the thing is that. I think a lot of investors under uh, underestimate, or they don't think about what a delicate equilibrium it is for a company to be highly creative, uh, and it goes away uh, goes away with the, the passing of leaders. Uh, leaders who are on these innovative companies seem a little bit crazy, uh, but there's a genius behind it, and it, it's there are other. Companies, you know, that are running a competition with them. People under so that's how you get a Polaroid with a 90 PE. Yeah. Well, you also, I mean, we also had happened with Apple. With Jobs was in and it was good, and then Jobs left and it was bad, and then Jobs got back in. Yeah, Although perfect. after it's he's gone, it's still done extraordinarily well. Um, so it wasn't only him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and and. Uh, well, you, and we can all remember General Electric with Jack Welch, and uh, then Immelt afterwards 
you know, writing yeah. it down. So, I mean, yeah, I think the leader becomes really... Well, this is the genius of the capitalist system. As Frank Knight in the 1920s emphasized, that there are things that nobody knows. Nobody knows whether Elon Musk is such a genius or just a loudmouth. You get a you get a a, a feeling uh, about it, and and maybe this is about human judgment, but still hasn't been replaced by quantified computer methods. Now, when it comes to value investing, I mean, both professors, you each have worked on some different ways of thinking about value, sort of, you know, you know, looking at things like a lot of value indexes will have a you know deep financials tilt because of uh, just the way they're constructed on a book value metric. You've looked at sort of different ways of looking at sector valuations right. and how to sort of think about that. How, do you want any, any comments on where the sectors look compared to history yeah. or any other of that type of value investing? First of all, I... I um I should disclose that I have Barclays Bank products that are uh, something like value products. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our, we have a uh, so that's a disclosure. <laughs> but we have a, a, a sector U.S. sector index that has done well since we launched it uh, years ago. I'm trying to remember exactly eight years ago, uh, and it. Uh, but but it's investing in uh, information technology sector now. Uh, and why is it in that sector now? What, well, what? because we uh, when we're looking at sector capes, cape ratios, we have to recognize that some sectors have historically had higher cape ratios going way back. Uh, and uh, if if we didn't take account of that, we would be investing in utilities and you know. Yeah. Uh, so you're correcting for the sector, and then what are you trying to invest in the lower-priced ones within that sector? Well, within with sectors that are still low compared to their uh, 20-year average mm. mm-hmm. in their CAPE. So we're in technology, information technology now, even though I consider this a value uh, investment thing. But is, 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 would, is technology below right now its 20-year CAPE? I, I, I don't, have I, I don't know where I don't know where it's, it's not uh, below the. Uh, uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Right. I, I don't know. So, Jerry, you've do. done some look at some of this stuff too, and there's an index uh, you've been been affiliated with that also has different sectors, and and it sort of look when I look at where that is, it's sort of been in healthcare, financials, industrials, and actually the communication services sector right, right now, which has which has some of those technology sectors kind of stocks too as well. Yeah, we're into that too. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, here's a question. You know, are these sectors well defined? Where does Tesla belong? Yeah. That, where is where is what what sector is Tesla going uh, into? Yeah. The, the uh, sectors you know? are somebody else's decision to lump together stock, which are often conglomerates and they have different divisions. So you'd think that automobiles would be under industrials. Uh, right, sounds industrial or or consumer discretionary. But they're right. in consumer discretionary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, which is now Amazon also. Yeah, now so Amazon moved into there, and Walmart is what in consumer staples. Is that right, Jeremy? Correct. Yeah. And, and, well, do you know where? T- does anyone know where Tesla is? We should know that. It's going I, into. Within yeah, a I think day. the consumer discretionary. Is it going into consumer discretion? That sounds logical, given what they've done. Yeah. And and yet few people. It's not priced like a consumer discretionary. Priced, I mean, and and people consider it a tech company. I mean, it it you know, I'm I'm just wondering what whether there's going to be in the future. Is there, is there going to be blurry? Very. It's not going to be well defined what sector you're in. But it's already not well defined. <laughs> I know, but it's going to get worse. Like, where do you put the motion picture industry? Uh, <laughs> that's where, where's in, uh, Netflix in? Yeah. You know I, what? Like, where is Netflix? <laughs> I think it's consumer discretionary also. Yeah, I think that sounds... Like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but, uh, you know, I, I, you know, very very honestly, I also have made the point for years, it's never caught on, that the idea that we internationally decide on, you know, where the company is headquartered and not where the company sells or buys yeah. is also an arbitrary feature right. of that. 
and uh, will the future be the same? So there, there's a, you know, I, I think we, I, uh, you know, I think there's a tendency to divide too many things into silos and distinct things. Oh, it's a French company or it's a this company um, when it isn't. Um, so we're coming down to sort of maybe three or four minutes left on our segment. Any, if we think about it, sort of wrapping up how we started on the on the model using interest rates for valuation, Professor. Any commentary you want to make on how you think about the five percent real returns, and then turn it over yeah. back to Bob for 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 thoughts. Yeah, but, I mean, I'm 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 looking ahead n- next year, and uh, we're we're we're, and I think we're actually going to exceed. I think we're going to do better than next year because I actually think the boom is going to be bigger, and I think there's going to be a little more inflation with. And so I, I think we're selling at around uh, 20 PE 2021, which is four and a half to five percent real. And um, so, uh, you know, that's my projection. Um, and it looked like, well, you know, uh, that authors had brought Bob up to the same, but now Bob is a little lower at three. But as as Bob himself mentions, right, that's still way above bond. I think I think Treasury bonds are the worst thing on investment you can have in the next two or three years. But uh, as, a, as an asset class, Bob, what do you think? Well, I, I was going to say before we close that there are dark clouds with the political situation, the anger uh, about the fraudulent uh, stealing of the election, uh, loss of connection with reality on that point, uh, loss of trust. Uh, on top of that, we also have uh, people who think the market is overvalued, uh, people who think that a crash of 1929 is a possibility. I know because I do questionnaire survey data. Uh, not that they think it's coming right now, but there, it's like an underlying disease, an underlying condition, uh, which makes could make for another round of high volatility and, and possibly a, a, a collapse in stock. So I'm not overly worried about that, but it, it, it's not like it's a... When we talk about a 3% or a 5% uh, a return. That's not a secure. That's not, that's not like a fixed. Email. That's with a dose of uncertainty, a, a substantial uncertainty right yeah, now. Big dose of uncertainty. That's why I say you know, five to ten years hence, there's less uncertainty, but still even then uncertainty. Uh, of course, um, I guess in in closing, that's why there's an equity premium. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we could argue whether it is as big as is, is it, you know, is it uh, as large as it should be? Uh, uh, is it too large? But that's what why equities have certainly done better than 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 the fixed income over all that time. Well, Bob, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, let's hopefully next year uh, as the pandemic eases and. Uh, we can look again and see what uh, permanent changes have uh, come about in the economy. It's always fun to talk. We've been talking for 50 years. Yeah. It's always fun. Let's not stop now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Eagle, Bob Schiller, this is Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. We're going to continue our discussion on markets, valuations, the CAPE ratio with another guest, Meb Faber, who's the co-founder, chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. He's also the host of the Meb Faber Show podcast, a lot of books and white papers. Meb, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Great to be back, bud. Um, so we're talking, uh, you had Schiller and Siegel discussing the CAPE ratio, one of the metrics you follow very closely. How are you, maybe give our, our listeners a little bit your sense on research on the CAPE, how you look at it, and what you're, th- what you're seeing today. It's always fun to listen to those guys. They deserve to be on the Mount Rushmore of, of researchers and academics for everything they've published. You and I, I think, got a long way to go to catch up. Um, the new paper is great. And the beauty of Schiller's work is he publishes it and puts all the data on the website. So you can go play around with it. And the problem, of course, is uh, I think the media misinterpreted the results. But I think it's incredibly useful for where we are in 2020. And so for perspective, his old CAPE ratio, right, looks at absolute valuation of the stock market. It goes back to 1800s. On average over time, it's around 17. It's been as high as 45 in the Internet bubble. It's been as low as 5. And right now it's around 34, which is the second highest it's ever been in history outside the Internet bubble. So you plug that into general stock market expectation equations, you get around 4%. He mentioned 5, right? So same ballpark. And by the way, that's about the same thing that John Bogle said before he passed, said low expected returns for U.S. stocks. 
what you hear a ton in the media, which I think has largely been discredited, but that's just me, is that a lot of people say, no, 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 you don't understand. U.S. stocks are allowed to be expensive because interest rates are low. Now, there's a kernel of truth in that, in that people are willing to pay a little bit more during times of mild inflation. So right now, in that sort of 1% to 4% safe zone, so that historical 17 average is allowed to be up around, say, 22. But it's certainly not 34, which is where we are today. So in his new paper, what he did is he added a new variable. And he said, here is the, the real interest rate. So bond, 10-year bond yield, minus inflation. Okay, And the real interest rate gives you a good indication of bond returns. But what he said in the paper and what he shows in the Excel is how good do stocks look relative to bonds, not do bonds influence whether stocks are attractive or not. And here's a good example. So right now, stock returns are going to be muted. The problem is bond returns look horrific. You're probably going to get, in any scenario, negative returns on bonds after inflation going forward, right? A 1% bond yield minus 2% inflation is negative. So stocks are expensive. Bonds aren't much better. Back in 99, when the stock market was at 45 P ratio, bonds yielded 5%. Yeah, the real so what this model is shows, all, all that he's showing is, is there an alternative in bonds? And right now, as almost every quant in the world has demonstrated, it's a terrible opportunity set in the U.S. Stocks are expensive, bonds are no better. Now, the problem, of course, we tweeted about the other day, we said stocks, when they first hit 34 in history, that was 1998. What happened next? Stock market went up 50%. Then, of course, it had no returns for a decade, uh, so it's a tough timing vehicle. But in general, we're getting into some nosebleed um, areas. Now, I think there's a lot of opportunity elsewhere. I'm happy to get into that. But for the most case, U.S. investors, it is one of the worst opportunity sets in over 100 years. It is interesting. I mean, I know I know. one of the things you've talked a lot about is what shows up well on CAPE ratios is sort of emerging markets. I think uh, I've seen some of your twits, tweets that about being over-allocated there and some of long-term sort of retirement-type type thinking. Is there, is there a case on the U.S. that sort of earnings growth is just going to surprise to the upside? Firms are doing more buybacks, reducing their share counts. Things are going to be better than expected, and sort of earnings are going to accelerate. Is that, is that any factor in your, in your Look, expectation? There's always a case. And as an investor, the 2020 should remind all of us is that really anything can happen in markets. So you have to at least include the tail scenarios, the left tail as well as the right tail. So maybe Elon Musk, you know, we were talking about him earlier in the, in the show, maybe he goes to Mars and finds some aliens that have built some engines that give humanity free energy. Who knows, right? You have to at least consider it. Um, and, and we're not done with 2020 yet, by the way. We still have about two weeks, so the alien invasion is still possible. Um, but you have to be like you have to approach it like a gambler or a speculator and who uses odds and the odds are not good when you start to get evaluations like this i mean vanguard has published some fun research on the idea multiplier and academic paper citations that show there should be a tailwind of productivity growth but on average what we say is there's 45 countries in the world most americans put 80 percent of their stock allocation in the u.s when Professor Siegel noted, the long-term average is only about half. So your default starting place should be half, but most people don't do that. Make a massive active bet, and everyone does that around the world, though, so don't feel too bad. But the bad news is, out of the 45 countries we track, I like to get the depressing stuff out of the way early, the U.S. is the second most expensive country in the world. Now, the good news is, most of the rest of the world is reasonable. So foreign developed, uh, the CAPE ratio is down in the low 20s, which is totally fine. Foreign emerging uh, is in the low t- is in the mid-teens, and the problem with emerging, it's most of the world's GDP, 60 percent. A lot of people don't know that. U.S. is only about a quarter. On top of that, the uh, market cap weight is around 13 percent. The average American allocates three, and then you have a valuation discount that is two thirds cheaper than the U.S. market. So all of these variables together come to a point where. I'm a romping, stomping bull on emerging markets. And then the cheapest detritus of countries at the bottom of the ocean that are super cheap, the Turkeys, the Russias of the world, uh, a lot of places in emerging Europe, you can still find, as you know, high dividend yields there, 4 5 6%. Uh, many of these countries are trading at P ratios below 10. 
But uh, it's long been a case of the U.S. stock market outperformance, which leads to some of the pockets of euphoria we're seeing. Um, a good example that always triggers me, Schroeder's does the annual survey, says expectations for returns, every country around the world, it's usually around 10. Well, the single high, highest expected returns for a country anywhere in the world was the U.S. at 15%. And if you go back to the CAPE ratio and into the bond yields, too, we're looking at sub-5 well, that dislocation between expectations and reality is really where the behavioral problems occur. As you know, with family, Thanksgiving, Christmas, when we used to all get together, if you have a uh, separation of expectations and the way the world really is, that's when the fractures occur, particularly with your money. Uh, it can really be painful, and that's when people panic and make poor decisions. Now, you run some asset allocation strategies. Uh, how are you thinking about sort of that bond challenge that you talked about, sort of the negative returns in bonds? Are you guys thinking about reallocating from bonds to other things? How are you thinking about, given where we are in bonds, given where you are in the CAPE ratios, how are you thinking about those models? Oh, there's a lot in there. Okay, let's <laughs> unpack it. So, um, you know, the starting point for me is always the global market portfolio. If you buy the world, every public asset, that's roughly half U.S., half foreign, half bonds, half stocks. That's a pretty killer portfolio over time. And that's already quite a bit different than what the average American holds, right? They're heavy overweight U.S. On the bond side, it's tough because bonds historically have offered two benefits. You know, they do well when it hits the fan. So this year, what did well during first quarter, bonds helped, but really only in the U.S. A lot of the sovereigns around the world, which is a weird time right now that many of them trade negative, many of those sovereigns did not help in those countries because they were already at low and negative yielding rates. And so uh, the question then becomes, how much do bond yields help in the future if we have another panic? And, and that's hard to count on. And if you talk about what would create the most pain for many investors that have always assumed that bonds would help, in the next downturn, if we ever have another bear market again, I think it would be that bonds don't help. Gold helped yeah. this year. Gold's kind of like a, a your, your crazy cousin Eddie. You know, sometimes he shows up and sometimes he doesn't. So you can't really count on gold. Obviously, tail risk strategies helped. Uh, value didn't help this year, but on average, I think it will over long periods. And then trend following, of course, one of my favorites. Uh, did a pretty decent job, too. So as we think about allocation, you know, um, the two pillars for me both go back 100 years, value and trend, uh, back to the time of, of Charles Dow as well as Ben Graham. And the trend following to me, you know, if you, particularly if you look at the U.S. equity market, it's a yellow flashing light. The market's expensive, but the trend is still up. And so the good news is post-March and then post-election, a lot of the headwinds of the past number of years, value, foreign, uh, U.S. dollar going up, uh, emerging markets, all those have reversed. Value is starting doing really well. Foreign is outperforming. You have the dollar rolling over. Will that last? I don't know. So getting at least to the global market portfolio is my piece of advice, uh, and then moving away from there. So calibrating, over-rebalancing, tilting towards things like value, foreign, emerging, I think are all totally reasonable ideas. It's interesting. I, I, you mentioned crazy, uh, crazy Eddie on gold. Siegel, you know, I, I've known him 20 years. He hadn't been a fan of gold. This was the first year he started talking positively, still likes it, I think, as sort of a, a buffer to those negative real returns that we're talking about on bonds. Um, you know, 2020 has been a weird year. Professor <laughs> Siegel, Warren Buffett buying gold stocks. I mean, what's what's left going to come around? It's been, a, it's been a crazy time. But, you know, the I, every asset has its day in the sun and its day in the shade. And the problem is a lot of those can last a long time. You know, the U.S. versus foreign, for example, the 2018s were an exception. If you go back all the way to 1900, it's pretty rare for the U.S. to outperform the equal weight or GDP-weighted global portfolio. Last time it happened was the 90s, you know, the Internet bubble, my favorite bubble when I was in university. Before that, it was all the way in 1910. So people extrapolate the most recent past forever, uh, and then that's usually the wrong thing to do. What we should be getting interested in, in many cases, are a lot of the assets that have done really poorly over the past cycle. And there's been nowhere worse, by the way, than sort of the ag and energy space. Energy used to be darn near a third of the S&P 500. It's now below three. 
which is insane to think about. So um, you got you can never get too attached to any asset. So kudos to, to the professor and, and Uncle Warren Buffett for uh, for um, you know changing their mind, being open minded, and getting an allocation to the shiny metal. Yeah. Um, and when you think about those CAPE ratios, we talked about U.S. being really negative. Do you think about value and growth CAPE ratios? I mean, I think it would be even more extreme when you would, if you were to segment growth is number versus value number. But any any sense of commentary within within the market there? Yeah. So one of the nice things um, about 2020, uh, coming into 2020, you didn't have as much dispersion within the market. It was sort of almost any indicator U.S. stocks were expensive. And then the massive amount of pain, and there was like finally, in my opinion, the value capitulation. In many cases, some of the small cap value funds were down by almost like half. So the good news is, at least uh, now and for most of this year since, is that the value spread within the U.S. and then across the rest of the world is some of the biggest levels we've ever seen. We wrote an article called uh, The Biggest Valuation Spread in 40 Years. And well, 40 years, and we're talking about the U.S. versus foreign. 40 years ago, it happened to be uh, the U.S. was cheap and the rest of the world was expensive. And in this case, it was Japan hitting a CAPE ratio of almost 100. Um, so the good news is, yes, I absolutely think value is a, a great opportunity. Um, it's been in the doghouse for a while, which makes me even more excited. Uh, but in many cases, you know, you can look at some of these value funds relative to the overall market and market cap weight. Uh, you guys were talking about Tesla earlier, and I was smiling about that. Um, and, uh, and in many cases, they have some pretty monster spreads that should get people salivating at least uh, at least a little bit and maybe a lot. Uh, we're down to our final two minutes here. Any, any you think about your research agenda, things that you're excited about for the new year, Other any uh, hot topics of, of what's on your, your, your hot topic list? I mean, I'm ready for 2020 to be over. Like, well, let's just get through this. <laughs> I'm ready to go skiing again. I'm ready to travel uh, for, for you and I to hang out in person instead of on the phone. But, um, you know, I tweeted about this the other day, and I said in general, we spend so much time trying to forecast what's going to happen in the unknowable future. Um, as we read Investing Outlooks last year, I don't think anyone mentioned a global pandemic and uh, us going from the all-time highs in the stock market, the fastest ever to a bear market, and vice versa. I don't think I saw that in any outlook. So as you read the end of the year outlooks, read them um, with maybe uh, your glass of champagne or tea or whatever it may be and, and, and a smile and just understand that the future is uncertain. But I think the advice I'd give most people, you know, everyone as an investor wants to be Nostradamus. They want to predict the future. You go on Twitter, and that's all it is, right? This is what's going to happen. I guarantee you Bitcoin's going to do this. Stock's going to do this. Tesla's going to do this. We said, really, people would be better off being Rip Van Winkle, coming up with an allocation, forgetting about it, don't spend any time on it, rebalance it once a year, as long as you have a plan that's reasonable, uh, you know, and, and hopefully write it down, share it with your loved ones, take out a blank piece of paper at the end of this year, write down your ideal portfolio, share it with your significant other, parent, children, whatever it may be, and try to stick to it. You can follow Meb on Twitter at Meb Faber. Great discussion. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.